Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tech Makers, the Ubisoft podcast. I am your host, David Usher. I'm the founder of Reimagine AI, the artificial intelligence creative studio. And today on Forging the Future, um, we're going to talk about action with uh, Josh, Gabrielle, and Julian. Can you guys all introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So my name's Josh. I'm really happy to be here and share our thoughts on the topic. And what do you do at Ubisoft? Uh, I'm or I I'm an R&D scientist, so in charge of the um, research and development. And uh, I work on pushing um, the state-of-the-art in artificial intelligence and kind trying to find interesting topics and interesting applications inside of Ubisoft and games. Hello, uh, I'm Gabriel. I'm a R&D developer. I'm working closely with uh, Josh. Uh, my focus is more on the technical side, how we push uh, all those innovations into game and uh, how to improve uh, our capacity to iterate. Hi, I'm Julian. Uh, I am a technical architect at Ubisoft Montreal. Uh, I've been working on the uh, on previous Far Cry games uh, during the past 10 or 12 years and uh, right now working on an undisclosed project. And I am working with uh, Gabriel and Josh to uh, to integrate the kind of uh, magical technologies that they are brewing at LaForge. <laughs> so, okay, let's start with the magical technologies and then move to the secret project. <laughs> what kind of tech are you guys working on? Yeah, um, that's, that's, um, that's a really good question. What kind of tech are we working on? No, uh, it's, um, well, really... For us and our team, we're really interested on bots, um, and that's the main uh, driver for the research. Um, and so the main tool that we've been using is uh, deep learning, and uh, in particular, we've been using reinforcement learning, so deep reinforcement learning, hence the term, and basically uh, training bots like you would train up uh, a dog to do tricks. That's kind of the best way I like to think about it. So you would give it rewards and treats for doing good things. Uh, for 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 the bot doing the thing that you want it to do, and potentially penalties and punishments for things that the bot is doing that you don't want it to do, and so that's a high level idea of what we're doing. And so then, what can you train a bot to do, and how can that be useful for building next generation games? Uh, that's what we're after. Cool. So it's sort sort of plus one minus one stuff. Is it mostly for physical? Is it for language? Is, what's the focus? Yeah. That's that's a really good question because, of course, you have bots do a whole bunch of different things. The main angle for us has really been, I mean, there's two different phases to it, but really like a bot kind of working in a physical sense um, like a player. So if you picture yourself playing an open world game or something, that those are the kind of bots that we're usually after. It doesn't just have to be exactly like a player. It could be a non-player character. It could be um, any types of other different things, but usually a physical character. So can you describe uh, exactly what SmartNav is? Sure. Yeah, so SmartNav is a really cool technology that we've built that essentially um, solves the task of being able to navigate from point A to point B on a map 
Um, so you have an actual character that's being able to navigate and can use all of the abilities available to a player, jumping, jumping twice, so interrupting your first jump with a second jump in the air, all sorts of cool abilities like zip lines, uh, sprints, all sorts of really cool things that potentially classical techniques in the video game industry haven't been able to solve as efficiently. And so with that, um, with that in place, using deep reinforcement learning as our driver, we're able to learn essentially a mapping from a state of inputs, like where the character is on the map, some visual representation, to actual gamepad actions. And so the character learns how to actually output actions on a gamepad. And what kind of things are you getting the, these characters to do? So the first thing that we try to address is how to move in the world. It's really important because it's the first thing that you see from a character. It's how we move in the world. So it, it was like a starting point. And be able to go from point A to point B, but having really this feeling that you are part of the world. So you learn in the world how to move instead of being a puppet or having an algorithm that just say, okay, goes following this straight line here. It will more interact with the world. And it's, it's really interesting because it also learn to use its own ability, its own speed, according to its own environment, and uh, it gives very organic feelings that it's really interesting. Are you, you guys using um, multiple AI bots in concert together, seeing how they react together, those kind of things? That's, uh, <laughs> that, no, that, that's, that's a really good question. So if you're just training an agent to, let's say, navigate from point A to point B, in a sense, you, could, you don't need other agents in the scene, right? It could interact. But to actually speed up the training, we want to actually have as many agents as possible in the in the game. So actually, as a byproduct, sometimes they could potentially collide with one another. Um, and that is something that is interesting to see, that they'll actually learn, oh, if I want to get to my goal position as quickly as possible, I shouldn't be colliding with uh, other characters. So they'll um, actually kind of learn to do some minor avoidance along the way. So they are interacting to some degree. Have you guys seen a lot of un unintended consequences? I think there's, there's always, I mean, I think with every deep reinforcement learning training, there's always something that you're surprised by. Either the, the bot figured out some little nook and cranny that you didn't think even existed, or potentially it's just, why is it, for example, our bots originally tended to just jump a lot. And that was one of the things. They were just, instead of just walking towards their target, like maybe a, a human maybe would initially, or maybe what a pre-scripted bot would do, actually. You would just script the bot to run in a straight line. But because we gave the agent the ability to jump, because we needed to be able to reach high, high places, it just repeatedly kept on jumping and jumping and jumping. And we're like, why is it doing that? And as it turns out, because we didn't give it the ability to sprint yet, it was just as fast as walking. So from its perspective, it's the it same thing. Same thing. And actually, it could help it get over some obstacles. Right. So it might as well just jump. Right. That's interesting. And jumping on this, interestingly, what's amazing with that kind of approach for navigation is that it's a, the model uses very high level concept. As you said, it's about sensing your environment and leveraging your abilities. And obviously, the result depends a lot of your environment and your abilities. And the example Josh was uh, was giving was regarding that smart enough technology used in a, in a specific Ubisoft game that was Hyperscape. And, uh, and when actually we started to adapt and integrate that technology in my project with a different engine, and obviously the agent have different physics and different abilities, and it was interesting because it's, it actually solved straight away that uh, crazy jumping because in our engine, the character can sprint uh, and run and naturally he stopped to jump for no reason and actually just leverage the running. And it created a, a very natural motion uh, and he even leveraged other abilities that were at the time in the game available, like wall running and those things without telling the, 
the model, the initial model that those abilities exist. So it's a right. So the environment had more more abilities, yeah. so it automatically adapted to exactly. the, and sucked in those abilities into its system. Those are example like in our setup, we had things like zipline. Yeah. And without even explaining the model that that kind of contraption exists, you actually learn wow. that it's useful because it's fast to go somewhere with it, and you shouldn't try to press action button to to uh, to eject. So you learn actually to use it to go to cross the map and uh, and use it properly without any uh, extra information. So that was really eye opening for everybody. I'm I'm really interested in how how it goes from in the forge. It goes from essentially uh, research, experimental to prototype? Like, how do you go through the actual process of integrating it into a real game? Who wants to, who wants to tackle that one? Anybody? Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, chicken and egg problem because uh, on the production side, obviously, everybody is always excited by new technology and doing new stuff. But, uh, but the price is expensive because by definition... Uh, those technology hasn't shipped in a real game uh, yet, so so you know that you will have a lot of problems. Like, is it uh, efficient enough? Uh, what the performance is regarding CPU memory? It needs to work in the end. Uh, uh, how can you fix everything you need to fix when you release the game? So you can't just uh, hide the problem you don't want. You need to fix everything that happens. So so there is a, a, a huge. Uh, a huge step between okay, it's working uh, in in R and D prototype and it's promising, and now the technology is mature enough so you can it can fit with all the production constraints. So that's why I say it's chicken and egg because everybody wants it, but as long as nobody has actually shipped with it, everybody is a little bit afraid to do we put money on this and add additional risk. Right. Of so course. you need to find the. So can the right person, the right timing to say, we think that what they are doing at La Forge is mature enough so we can take the risk to try to to use it in the production. But I would say using kind of backdoor to introduce it, because if you if you say, oh, the whole game will actually break or succeed around this, it's too risky for everybody. So you need to find a way to integrate that technology in a way that it, it will be used by the game. But if you need to pull the plug or if you need to to rescope where it's used, you can you can still live with it. And uh, that's really the tricky part. And, uh, and usually that's, uh, that's the tension in game production. There is a huge, uh, huge, uh, huge competition between studio, project, technology engine. So obviously everybody will always want more. But on the other hand, you have a few words to ship a product. So you can't risk... Uh, introducing new technologies that easily. So usually a lot of production wants to stay with what is proven. So so we are really at that point. And uh, on the on the bet is to make sure that you you don't start too early because it, it might not be mature enough and it's going to be a fail and that could delay using it for years. If you are too late, obviously, that means other people will find that kind of solution and you might be lagging from a competition standpoint. So it's really that kind of technological window where is it? Are we ready to start and are we ready to 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 take that risk? And we are actually here, so so we'll see where it's going. Are you guys ready to ship now to production? Is it? I mean, are we this this specific technology, SmartNav? What's really impressed me is actually that regardless of what engine, what game we put it in, it works. Okay, so that's what's really cool about it. Uh, it's kind of blown me away a bit, even. Uh, that, so that's really cool. But I just wanted to add one more thing. It's kind of our job 
to make the prototypes that we're building not necessarily inside of the actual game engines look as good as possible so that it does convince people to actually internally want to use it. That's kind of key. And they don't see it as this huge risk. There's always going to be that risk because um, our internal prototypes that we're building are little toy environments to test the ideas aren't, aren't real games. Um, and so they don't look necessarily like a real game. They don't act exactly like a real game, but that's kind of part of the research side of the equation to make the research look as cool as possible in a way so that uh, people in productions are excited. So by you have it. to really entice the, the people in production to want to use it and to say, I really need this in, in the yeah. game itself. But it's right. So we want to be sure at the first step, even when we do uh, just a research prototype uh, in a very simple environment, game environment, to have people from production as stakeholders to follow what we do, to show them the possibility, but also to have feedback to be sure that we go in the right direction, that will help a first implementation in the game to show that, yeah, it's possible also in a true game or in a true game engine on the advanced step-by-step, cautiously. Uh, but uh, it's really really impressive to see that now it works in different game engines, uh, different environments. It's really cool. How does failure work within LaForge? Like, because, I mean, a lot of a lot of research ideas, you know, you especially if you're trying to integrate them with something that production might not do what it's supposed to do in so the end. So Lucat is a great example. I yeah, think. I think it's, yeah, it's actually a really good example. Um, essentially, uh, so we have a bot that can navigate really well. And this is, like I said, consistent across any engine we throw it in. But then we want to add potentially an, ad- an additional uh, constraint uh, to the problem. So now we potentially want it to also be able to aim as it's navigating. Uh, and that could have a bunch of different interesting plays on on the navigation because maybe now, well, now it can't sprint at the same time as it's, um, if it has to aim to the left and now it wants to sprint towards the goal that's in front of it, it actually has to balance that constraint. It can't do both at the same time. So it actually is a very difficult problem. And so essentially things weren't really working as we expected. So adding that additional constraint kind of broke what we were doing and we went back to the drawing board came up with a whole new research idea to kind of integrate that into SmartNav. Um, and then, you know, six months later or whatever, however how much time I've kind of lost a bit of time. <laughs> 60 months later. <laughs> so, no, six months about, uh, you know, we have we have some really cool prototypes using that. Okay. And I, f- I think it, uh, it, it also shows, us, uh, I think, the kind of future circle we are trying to create. It's because that look at constraint came actually from the integration we did in the project where we were both to look at and shoot at things. And, uh, and obviously for LaForge, it was kind of, a, oh, it's potentially a, a, a custom style, but maybe it, it's something that is uh, more or less relevant. But for a game centered around shooting, it's absolutely critical that it's not just about moving around, but being able to look at things. And, uh, and obviously, so I pushed to say, okay, no, this is not just a customization. This is the customization. And, uh, and, uh, and so that puts the emphasis on where do we, uh, where should we go regarding R&D? It's uh, the R&D is coming with the solution. We use it and we see real problem for real game. And that give hints to the R&D to say, if you invest more time, that should probably be in that direction because that's where we want to go. And, uh, and that's the kind of, uh, of exchange that is, uh, is very exciting between Production engineering and uh, and I would say more uh, uh, research and development. 
What is really interesting is what get out of it. It's not just a move on aim. It's a new way to work on the reward because it's always difficult to tell, okay, to fine tune what is a good or the bad behavior. And thanks to this, we are able to give constraints, say, okay, I want your main task is to move to this direction, but now I will give you a couple of constraints. And it's easier to define those constraints. So it's a new tool also for the designer to be able to work with this new technology. So the designer can can add constraints as well? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's it, it, it really is a cool project because it kind of goes full circle. There's this need in the production that we couldn't meet. We tried with our basic approaches. It wasn't working. Um, and then we really needed to invest some research time. So we actually had a student come in. He was doing his PhD, came up with this really cool algorithm, you know. And so it really is this full full cycle thing. And um and uh, and then we're back, and it actually works really nicely. And we have some even even more than just solving the original problem with the look at. We can now deal with a whole bunch of other problems. Like for example, before with the jumping, if we didn't want our agent to jump that much, and we didn't want to change the game to add a sprint, we can now add an extra constraint: don't jump too much, basically. Like, right. So like, we have all these extra little uh, knobs that we can play with. So, so you, sorry, on, go on. on the design part is interesting because that's the thing that moving into production bring and we are not at that stage yet because even if it's working in the game as a, as a real feature obviously it's not really in full production yet but that's also what you need uh, to learn as well going into production it's obviously to to uh, solve a lot of technical issue but also when we say that the tech needs to be integrated in production that means that people will have to use it and in particular designers they will have at one point to understand some of it, maybe not all, obviously, all the machine learning behind it. So but they can understand how to to play with it and uh, how they can tweak it. Because obviously, in the end, if, if that kind of technology is successful in the coming years, that means that it's going to be a, a feature that will have to be tweaked by non-programmer, by designer, and it will have to solve a practic- practical problem for a game. And, uh, and that, that's also the goal into going into production is to... It's to explore the, the, all the dependency between uh, machine learning and technology and, and design needs and production constraint. So it's, it's a long road ahead. So you were, you were talking about um, an unnamed project. Yeah. So are you allowed to talk about anything about this unnamed project? Not really. Uh, <laughs> some, not secrets, really. some secrets you can give out just to me? Yeah, not, not really, but you know a little bit. Obviously, there are some uh, agents and boats, and they are moving around, and potentially they want to look at things and shoot at stuff. So, <laughs> You've so. given it all away. And there is a plane. Sorry? There's a zipline, exactly. There's a zipline. Yeah. <laughs> zipline game, well, exactly. This could change because... Uh, <laughs> So you were talking about bringing in PhDs, I think, or undergrads, students. How does that onboarding process actually work at LaForge? Yeah, that's actually that's actually really interesting. So, I mean, we're we're constantly trying to have like an influx, like an inflow of students, because obviously it's going to be fairly short term. We usually aim for at least a six month project, but it could be longer. We could actually have PhD students stay on for their whole PhD, which could be several years. Um, and so there is really a big range of uh, of the of the types of projects that we're trying to tackle. The the hardest ones are actually the the short term internships because the by the time exactly like you said like onboarding people and then having them potentially do something productive, you know these these interns aren't just getting coffee; they're actually working on the research, the core research problems. So, um, and then having them you know write up a little report at the end. If you try and do that in four months, it almost never works. So it actually is. It actually is a bit of a game because you have this time limit. 
component to it. How are they brought? How are they brought in? They're, are they brought in as as uh, staff, or are they brought in as in, like interns? Or how we, is it? We actually have different mechanisms. I'm so curious. it's you know it's we, we actually have different mechanisms. Um, we can bring them on um, as regular interns, uh, and then we could bring them on as more long term. I think the more long term students have potentially different titles, and there's different grants and whatnot that we can work with with the university. So it is a bit intricate to play with the universities. Obviously, if you're taking someone's student from them for a year or two, there has to be a collaboration with the professor. So it is a, it is a bit of an intricate business there. Okay, interesting. And how do you find them? Good question. Fortunately, we're <laughs> currently in one well, of podcasts the... Podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah, podcasts like this. We're currently in one of the uh, AI AI hubs of the world, like uh, this city, uh, be- beautiful city of Montreal. So plenty of universities working on AI, plenty of students. So a lot of them come from Montreal, but not solely from Montreal. So that's, you know, that's definitely part of it. Um, we meet them at conferences uh, that we publish in. We meet them at all different events. We do some... Um, we do some events where we just talk about our research at different universities, at different venues. So it really is, uh, there's a bunch of different ways. Interesting. So can you guys talk a little bit about your uh, experience at LaForge? Like it's, it's been around for five years, I guess, around five years. And how has it changed for you guys? How has it grown? And what are, you feeling, what are your feelings about it that way? So I don't know who, maybe, maybe you should go first, Gabriel. I think you have. Uh, okay. he's, he's rub, just so you, so you can, the listeners can know, he's rubbing his face around his forehead, <laughs> which is never a good sign. No, no, I, 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 I saw uh, La Forge uh, happen on the growth, and it was really interesting because uh, at the beginning it was very not a lot of people try trying to look for what is a good topic, how we can convince people, how to gather people from production to follow uh, what they're doing. So me, at this time, I was on production. I was working on uh, Assassin's Creed and uh, they were doing some very interesting work on the battle uh, on the fight boats. Uh, so I was curious about it. They were also doing work about how to drive uh, a car uh, autonomously in a game. But the first year were, were kind of difficult because we had good prototypes, but it was hard to have them in the game, to reach uh, the game. And uh, I think it's also where they really grow over time is to have more connection with production, more visibility uh, on more solid uh, topics. Yeah, as I mentioned before, yes, it's a... Uh, I don't know, I guess five years ago, how, how, how complex, complex people thought it would be, but it's... Uh, even within the same company, it's very hard to move technology. Even super exciting one. Uh, I saw prototype four or five years ago, and it was already cool. But as you can see, it takes years to create even internally those links that trust to be able to go in production. And and after this, you still need to wait for a few years to luckily see the result of all of this in a game that will be publicly uh, available. So so hopefully in the next couple of years, two or three years, there might there will be a few uh, Ubisoft games that will uh, will be released, and actually some of those technology will be will be in it, and uh, and but as you can see, it's uh, it's between five or ten years from the drawing board and, and creating the structure for R and D at Ubisoft, and having practical result, and uh, I don't think it's that easy to to make it faster. Yeah. And I'd like just adding in terms of like working at LaForge. So I've been working there for almost two years now, straight out of my PhD. So I finished my PhD. I joined. I really love the work culture that we have. It kind of has this small like startup vibe 
which is kind of what's going on, although we are expanding to different offices around the world. So now it's kind of um, it's growing. But I think we're not losing that that close knit culture. And I think it's really important to to have that kind of culture when you're trying you're trying some crazy ideas uh, on the on the research side and having that um, that freedom to uh, to kind of try things that might not necessarily work, but are kind of out there. Also, I think for uh, for people, for all those uh, those people working in machine learning, obviously it's it's in demand in every industry now. But I think uh, Ubisoft and the video game industry as a, as a whole is a as a, maybe a specific age because it's uh, like every technology. If you apply it to a topic like video games, it's uh, obviously for a lot of people. I think it has a, a specific. Uh, uh, Specific interest and specific vibe, and also you you are able to work with uh, with also uh, in our case uh, Ubisoft uh, uh, the Ubisoft Studio, and that means that you you have access to amazing artists, amazing data. So that means that your 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 model and SmartLab is a good example. All the technology was working with a cube jumping around, and obviously it proves that everything is working, and the complexity is actually here. But when you start to transfer this and you start to see it moving with a AAA character, with a world-class animation and models and environment, the exact same technology actually takes your life on its, on its own. And I can imagine that for researchers that probably most of them don't have access to that kind of quality assets, it's, uh, it's probably an, an exciting uh, incentive to actually uh, see your technology applied to that kind of context. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> For me, when the, uh, the key factor of success of La Forge is really to make this bridge on, between academic and production to be sure that we don't just do research for the sake of doing research and to be sure to be grounded always in production and also to have the production that accept to take some time to do research. Uh, don't expect everything to work uh, instantaneously, but uh, okay, it will take six months, it will take years uh, possibly. And it's for me, it's really the source of success because I've often seen initiatives where we try to do research and it just been like a, because it's not related to production and it's not grounded in a real needs and it finished to stop. So I really like this formula and I'm really happy to show that five years later it proves the success. That's very it. cool. I mean, it's very interesting that even within even within the balance between between LaForge and production, there's the actual creating of the prototype, but then there's the actual, you need to package it in a way that can spark the imagination of production to to want to play with it and want to want to adopt it. It's very interesting. So if you can give me the future of uh, SmartNav, what's, what is it going to become? What's the grand plan? In our case, uh, the, one of our goal is to to try to create a new new breed of NPC non-player characters uh, based on machine learning. But what we try to do right now, again, to make sure that we don't we find the right scope. Uh, SmartAv is interesting because it's here to solve only one problem. It's a big one. It's navigation. It's a it's a, the fundamental foundational uh, uh, feature for an NPC. Whatever you do as a as a as a creature, if you can't move from A to B, you can't do much else. So, so uh, so SmartNav is here to solve that kind of thing. When I say it, is it in our specific case? We are not trying to use machine learning to create a boat that do everything. 
And that's that the kind of research that exists and it's super exciting. So they basically, for example, just look at the screen and they learn to behave in the world just by looking. So it's super promising, but it's super expensive. And, uh, and if you want to this to, to work in a real game, probably that kind of model is as of today way too expensive for your console, your PS5 or your server. Uh, so, so interestingly with SmartNav, it's still a complex model that is expensive. But it's it's more manageable from a from a performance standpoint. So that means that we can build an NPC and and technically replace the the, the classical technology we use for navigation, and we try to cram that technology inside. And, and right now it's working pretty well. We still have a lot of things to solve, but but technically it's working. So it's a way to to grow that machine learning uh, approach, but without putting all our eggs in the same basket. So, Because the goal is to, in, hopefully in the two or three years, to be able to ship something that is uh, functional and that is uh, that can work for the project. So so it's a, it's a very good trade-off by actually trying to, uh, to solve something specific. And after we can grow it, we can maybe have machine learning that solve much more behavioral uh, uh, problems, but it's a very good uh, good way to uh, to tackle a specific problem. Yeah, and I think we actually spoke about one of the examples of you know the future of smart nav with being able to handle like you know looking at a target for instance and doing the aiming because now the the model can navigate and it could also aim and so now you could really think about building an NPC with this at its at its core. There's so there's so many other interesting research problems like can a model train on a few maps or and then be able to generalize to new maps it's never seen before just because it's able to navigate can we do long-term planning and what i mean by that is not just be able to navigate locally which is kind of what our agent does although it does actually work pretty well on decent sized maps for like a few hundred meters squared but you know extending that beyond that boundary and solving open world maps right which is what we're kind of known for here so it's like so you know there's a lot of interesting research problems that are still unanswered with smart nav although we have some solutions to handle everything there's still a lot to do there Uh, we have a lot of uh, online uh, games multiplayer where we don't have boats because uh, players have abilities navigation abilities where we don't really have currently uh, ai solution for those abilities so thanks to smart nav we'll be able to use all those different abilities by learning how to, to use them. And what is interesting, it's it solves two problems with one stone. Uh, not only we can now use those abilities, but the, the result is really more player-like. The behavior is really more player-like. So it's a side effect, but it's a really good side effect uh, for us. Fantastic. Well, thank, thank you very much, guys. I totally appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you very much. So thanks for listening to Tech Makers, the Ubisoft podcast. I'm your host, David Usher. And next time, forging the future, responsible tech. See you next time.